Well, hey, welcome again, church. And uh, if you're just joining us, my name's Trent Whitley. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Sulphur Community Church. And we're happy that you're joining us this morning. We're happy you're able to be with us. Uh, we're going to be walking through our series called The Crushed Head and the Bruised Heel. We've been there uh, over the last, well, since the beginning of this year. And we plan on walking through Scripture as a whole faithfully this year. And so hopefully you're benefiting from that. Uh, and I just want to remind you that there's there's some guides available that go along with our sermon series on uh, sulfurcommunitychurch.com on the resources tab. And these guides just kind of help you to walk through the Scripture to interpret uh, to try to help you interpret what the Scripture is actually saying and then apply those those truths and those things that we see within the Scripture to our lives. And so it also gives our, our children a story that goes along with the, with the sermon that we're preaching in the Jesus Storybook Bible. And so you can see the, the page numbers for that story at the very bottom of that guide. And so I hope you would use that guide, and I hope that uh, that would be beneficial to you. And so... Uh, as we dive into the text, we'll be in Daniel chapter 6 today, by the way, if you want to turn there with us. Um, last week, we saw that through all the judgment that was pronounced on Judah and Israel through Isaiah, we see this, this glimmer of hope that when Isaiah points us to a Savior, to a Savior that is Jesus Christ, that he was the Savior that was born as a child who will establish King David's throne again with perfect justice and with perfect righteousness and under whose kingdom that we will never see an end to peace as he rules over us faithfully. But unfortunately for Israel and Judah, this was pointing to a Savior who would come much later than the situation that they're in right now. And right then, Israel and Judah are in this very rebellious time in history where they've turned away from the one true God and have sought after their own gods and have followed their own ways and have gone against God's law. And so as Isaiah speaks as God's prophet or his messenger to Israel, he spends a good part of his time pronouncing judgment on Israel and judgment on Judah. Judgment uh, was to come from following after other gods and from idolatry. And, and actually, he, God, over the, over the course of Isaiah and Jeremiah, is constantly urging Israel and Judah to turn back to him, to go back to, to him and his ways. But when they inevitably don't, God proclaims that he's going to raise up other nations to take captive Israel and to take captive Judah for their sins against him. And so, in fact, in chapter 8 of Isaiah, right before last week's message, there was this declaration that the Assyrians would come and that they would invade and conquer Israel, which they did in about 720 B.C. We see that happen. And so the destruction of Israel was then, and the destruction of Judah is not far behind. So about a hundred years later, the prophet Jeremiah comes to the scene with another message of the same tune. Repent, turn away from your sin, come back to the Lord. But they don't. And they continue to break the covenant with God, and they pursued their heart's desires rather than following His law. They pursued after other gods. And so Jeremiah pronounces judgment on Judah. He says, because of their disobedience, Jerusalem will fall into the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who we'll see a little bit more about later on today. And so God even proclaims in Jeremiah chapter 21 that he will turn the people of Jerusalem's weapons on themselves, that he will literally actively fight against them through the Babylonians and the Chaldeans to punish them. And then it comes to pass, just as the Lord has said, 
that shortly after this prophecy, Jerusalem falls to Nebuchadnezzar and to the Babylonians. And so those who survived the attacks, those who were, who were able to get out alive, are taken captive as exiles into Babylon. So that's where we are today. That's the situation we're in when we get into the book of Daniel. But throughout the destruction and the persecution, God was still working through a remnant of Israelites, through a small group of Israelites who loved and who trusted in the Lord. And so under Nebuchadnezzar's rule, we're introduced to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, those that we know better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so for the sake of time, we won't go too deeply into this narrative, but we see that these men were, were chosen by the king to live with him, to eat with him, and to ultimately be leaders in his kingdom, along with Daniel that we'll see today. And so uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the story goes, the, the narrative goes that uh, the king made these images of gold, and he decreed that everyone, when they heard this particular music being played, had to bow down to the king. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no, they, they would not bow down to the king, which gave them the sentence of being thrown into a fiery furnace. And so God shows his mighty hand through this situation as they're not only not burned up in the fiery furnace, but not even a hair was singed on their head when they came out. And not only that, but the people of Babylon could see this fourth person in the fire, which many believe is the same angel of the Lord that we're going to see today. And so the story kind of goes that God delivers his people, that he shows his glory in this situation, and that Nebuchadnezzar, even, the, the wicked king, praises God. And so at the same time all of these things are going on, we see this man named Daniel. And so what we see about Daniel immediately, we find out a lot about him just from his name. Uh, Dan, being Hebrew for judge, the long E in between being Hebrew for my, and then L, of course, is God. And so when you put all of that together, it goes. his name literally means God is my judge. And so immediately when I thought about that, uh, I thought about some of the sayings that people like to say, some of the tattoos that they like to put on their arms and stuff that say, only God can judge me. But it's completely different than that, right? Most of the time when we see that, somebody's trying to escape from some type of authority that was placed on them. Somebody's trying to escape from something that they don't want to be judged by. But for Daniel, it was completely different, right? This was a declaration that he loved God, that he sought only to do what was right in the eyes of God. That no matter what it looked like in relation to everything else, he was going to serve the Lord. So that's what we see with Daniel. He was consumed by God receiving the glory that was due to him. He knew that the glory was due to God, and he wanted to give God that glory. And we see visible evidence of this in his life, right? We see his life pours out with this. First of all, he worships God by the way that he eats. In Daniel chapter 1, we see that the king offered a portion of food and wine daily from his own table for these people, for these leaders, some of the best food that they could possibly indulge in. But because of God's law, because of his dietary law, Daniel decides to refuse that and, to, and not to defile himself. So he worships God with the way that he eats. He also worships God through his interpretation of the king's dreams. One of the gifts that, that God gave him was to be able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. And so he speaks uh, directly and truthfully from God's decrees when he, when he interprets these dreams. 
even if the outcome is not a favorable outcome for the one he's telling the dream, even if he's about to tell Nebuchadnezzar that something bad is going to happen to him, he remains faithful to what God tells him, and he communicates those dreams. He also worships God through his daily devotion to him, and we're going to see that a little bit more in just a few minutes. But the interpretation of, of these dreams and, and his overall wisdom allows Daniel to be able to be promoted pretty, he- pretty highly into the kingdom. And so we see that as we get to chapter 6 today. And when we get to chapter 6, King Darius, the Mede, has just become king. And we'll see that this is very important to the narrative that we're going to see today. And so if you would, turn with me to Daniel chapter 6. Uh, we'll start in verse 1, and we'll see Daniel's dominion and some of the others' uh, jealousy in this situation. So chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and the satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the, over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So in King Darius's kingdom, there are 120 satraps, or rulers that are set out to govern these particular provinces that, are, that, are, that make up this kingdom. And so there's three high officials in charge of this entire kingdom, and Daniel is one of them, and he's actually the one that's valued over the other two. So his purpose in this was to protect the king, to protect the king from any, any uprisings that would come, any, anything that would come against him from his own people, to try to, to appease the people and to make them want to follow the king, and then also from any type of bribery or internal issues that came about. So if Daniel was somebody that, wouldn't be, that wasn't able to be trusted, then he could be bribed and, and effectively, um, effectively would work against the king. And so what these men needed to be above reproach, is what I'm trying to say. And this is probably why Daniel became the top king's official, because he was that man that was above reproach, that could be trusted. And so because of this, we see in verse 4 that the other officials and the satraps become jealous of Daniel. They become jealous of him. And so it says that they tried to find this complaint to bring up to the king but they couldn't find any complaint to bring in him because he was a faithful servant of the king. And also there was no error or fault in him. That's what we see from from Scripture. And so that's a pretty large statement, right? There's no error or fault in him. Somebody, If somebody's looking at me and looking at my leadership, they're going to be able to see some holes in my leadership very quickly. Upon Basically, upon first glance, they'll be able to see some holes in my leadership. But these guys are trying to find fault in Daniel, and they can't find it. So Daniel was above reproach. He lived his life in service to God and in service to the king. So the only thing that these people could possibly find that they could pit against him would, to, would be to make a decree that goes against God's law because they knew that he would follow God. I wish people would say that about us. I wish they would say that about us when they talk about us, that the only fault that they could find in us is to try to make us disobey God. Unfortunately, a lot of times we fall for a lot less. And that's sad. 
But part of what makes their plan work, this plan that they're going to devise, is that they knew Daniel would not deviate from God's law and, they would not, and that he would not turn away from God's ways. And so let's look at their plan in Daniel chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 6. It says, Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the, pre- the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and of the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. So they got to be sly, right? These guys have to be sly when they go in there and, and not tip off the king as to what they're trying to accomplish. So they use this flattery. They go in and they try to butter him up. They try to appeal to him in any way that they possibly can. And this appeal would make any new king, this new king that comes in, King Darius, they would make any new king want to give in to their request. And so what they want to do is they want to, first of all, boost his ego. They are effectively lifting his status to God king. They say, if anybody comes and prays to anyone except for you, then they should be thrown into the den of lions. So they, they're, they're lifting him up as God king. And, so what, and that's what many previous kings like Nebuchadnezzar actually believed about themselves. So this is right on track with that. So they're lifting up the king's status. And then second of all, they're, they're trying to express their allegiance to his authority. Every new king desires to know that the people underneath him are going to be, uh, are, are going to pledge allegiance to him, are going to be uh, in, in, are going to continue to do the things that he wants them to do. And so um, with this, the king can know that he's got these people, that they tr- that he can trust them and that he, and that they will care for him. So he thinks. And so these people, in their slyness, they have effectively tricked the king into something that we'll see in just a few minutes. So they get him to sign this decree that if anyone prays or asks requests to anyone except for the king, that they will be thrown into the den of lions, an imminent death sentence, so they think. And it's interesting kind of what we see next. We'll see Daniel's faithfulness and this impending sentence that comes from that. Uh, let's start in verse 10, chapter 6. It says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, This thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. 
And so we, and so they've got to be. They, we we see this thing going on. We see that that Daniel, um, that Daniel finds out about this plot. Right. We see that Daniel finds out about uh, what's going on here. That he finds out um, what's about to happen to him. And what does he do? He goes immediately away and locks himself away and protects himself, and he builds up this army of dudes around him to protect him, right? No, that's not what he does. He goes back to doing what he always does. He goes to praying like he does three times a day, every day. There's a few things that we can benefit from in seeing how Daniel prays here. There's a few things that we can benefit from in in seeing what he does. First, he prays willfully, and he he prays purposefully. We know from the text that that he knows that this is an unfavorable decree for him, that this is going to be something that doesn't turn out well for him that because it was stated by the king. But he still does as he's done his whole life. Verse 10 and 11 tells us that he goes immediately and he gives thanks before God and he puts his requests before God. He puts his, his needs upon God. He's not unaware of what's going to happen to him, but he's resolved that it was more important to be in constant communication with God than it was to live. He understands that. He's resolved to do anything that he can to serve God and to communicate with God. His life was communicated, it was consumed with obeying and with glorifying God, and it came out especially in this time of distress. So next, Daniel prays toward Jerusalem. That's what we find out. And this is a plea that we see from Solomon in his prayer of dedication in 1 Kings chapter 8. So if we go back to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 44, it says, If your people go out into battle against their enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, and then they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. So this shows that Daniel believes God and that he trusts that he's going to deliver Israel just as he has promised. He has faith that God is going to hear his pleas for help and believes that he has a plan, that God has a plan for deliverance, for the deliverance of Israel and for the deliverance of Judah, even if he can't see it in his certain circumstance right now. Remember, when he's praying toward Jerusalem right now, Jerusalem is in shambles. It has been taken apart piece by piece. It is, it is completely destroyed. But he, in his prayer toward Jerusalem, trusts in the Lord. It shows that he trusts that the Lord is going to redeem his people just in the way that he says he will. Also, he prays very consistently to his God. There's no ambiguity in his prayer. There's nothing, nobody could, nobody could say, well, hey, maybe he's actually praying to Nebuchadnezzar. No, he prays very specifically to the God of Israel and to the God of Israel only. He submits solely to God's will and he lets the rest fall out wherever it may. He knows this is coming upon him and he still prays. So just as they had planned, the accusers, they get exactly what they want. They go to the king, they remind him of this agreement that they had with him, and then the deception comes out, right? If this is true, O king, if if what you decreed is true, then Daniel's got to go into the lion's den. This servant of yours has to go into the lion's den. And we see the king's response immediately, and this is what's different from Nebuchadnezzar's response with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to go into the furnace for not worshiping. 
But King Darius, he was tricked. King Darius, sorry, I don't know which way to pronounce that. He was tricked. But since he was a new king, the public's opinion of him was much stronger than any plea that he could possibly put forward to save Daniel. He really didn't have as much power as he thought he did. But he tried. And what we can see from this passage, like we can think of the irony here. This king who wanted to be proclaimed as God king one day, the next day is, is distressed and is in anguish and won't eat or drink anything during Daniel's whole sentence. That doesn't sound like a king to me. That doesn't sound like a god to me. It sounds like a weak man. And it's amazing how low he's brought through this whole situation. And again, we see this theme that we've seen throughout Scripture. The power and the might of the one true God versus the frailty of man. The frailty of man trying to make himself God. And so then next we see the Lord's deliverance and his glory proclaimed. Let's read in Daniel chapter 6 starting in verse 16. It says, Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. So just as he had promised, Daniel is cast into the den with this sort of prayer from from, uh. Darius says, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. He's saying, look, I was weak. I'm a weak man. I can't deliver you. But maybe your God can. Maybe this God that you trust can deliver you. So he's thrown into the den and a stone is laid on top of the den for no chance of escape. And so we hear the king's response, as we said earlier. He had no food. He had no diversions. And he had no sleep the night that Daniel was in the den. But we don't really know what Daniel did before he was in the den or while he was in there. But we do get to hear a little bit about Daniel's response when he sees, uh, when the king sees that he's alive and well after being rescued uh, by God from the lions. And so, first of all, we see Daniel's response. We see, we see that he respects and he honors the king. He says, O king, live forever. Then he directly points his salvation, the saving that happened that night, to God. He directly points that to God. He says, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. Daniel was saved by God. And just to note, uh, many believe that this angel of the Lord was the same as the fourth person that was found in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
Also, some scholars would say that this is another Christophany, kind of like we saw in, in the book of Joshua a few weeks ago, where the commander of the army of the Lord shows up. Uh, and this Christophany would be the, the pre-incarnate Christ, this Jesus. Uh, we see Jesus in another form before we see him in his New Testament form. And so uh, that's actually one of the questions that's in the guide this week. I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. I'd like to hear your comments on that. It'd be really cool if we could study this a little more deeply and, uh, and kind of have a discussion about that. But either way, this angel of God actively shuts these lions' mouths, and Daniel is saved. And so the king, in response, he does two things. First, he pulls Daniel out of the den, and he threw those that accused Daniel, along with their entire families, into the den. And by the way, this turns out pretty ugly, right? we see immediately that the lions consume them before they even reach the bottom of the den, which would debunk any type of theories that we have that the lions didn't have any teeth or maybe they were tame or, or maybe something happened that, that would kind of try to discredit God and his glory. We see that they definitely were hungry and they ate everything from these people. So that's the first thing he does. And second, he gives this decree to his kingdom. And we'll read Daniel chapter 6, verse uh, verses 25 through 28 really quickly, and that'll close out uh, the reading today. It says, Then King Darius wrote to all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And so as he gives this decree, it seems that now he kind of understands his place. He understands his rightful place as a king that was established solely by God. He sees just how much he is unlike God. Let's look at it. He says that people should tremble and fear before the God of Daniel because he is the living God, first of all, as opposed to the false gods that are worshipped by Darius and by all the Babylonian kings before him. God is the real, the true, the one true God. Second, he endures forever. Darius couldn't even hold the weight of being a God king for one day. He couldn't hold the weight of that kingdom, but God holds all things together. We find that out through scripture that he holds all things together. He has created all things and he sustains all things. And also we see his kingdom will never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end of the earth. Earthly kings come and go. God decrees that one is going to die, and then he dies. God wants to turn one king into a creature that chews grass like a beast of the earth, like he did to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, and he does. God does what he pleases. God wants to restore this man back to being a normal human, and he does. Just like Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6 says, it says, All flesh is grass, and all beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The kings of the earth are grass. One breath, poof, and they're gone. One breath from God. But God, the Lord, reigns forever. 
And so this decree, in summary, should, should show us what this narrative is really trying to point us toward, right? It's trying to point us toward God receiving the glory that is due to him and choosing to allow man in his providence to take part in that act of glorification so that we can fulfill our deepest need, which is to worship him and to honor him and to adore him. But God chose to ultimately accomplish that purpose, accomplish the purpose of redeeming us, through an unusual and very costly way. He sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, to be born into this world of, of sin and darkness under this Roman authority and oppression in Israel at that time. To live a life that was, that was marked by persecution, by trials, by poverty, by suffering servanthood. For Jesus to have resolve in knowing that his purpose in being born, his purpose in coming to this earth, was to give up his life in perfect submission to God's will, saying, Father, if you are willing, would you remove this cup from me? But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's Luke chapter 22, verse 42. And ultimately, Jesus dying a gruesome death on the cross in order to save us from our sin, which we needed him for which we needed him for, which would have ultimately, this sin would have led us to death, but he has come and he has saved us from that sin. You see, Jesus in this narrative is the greater Daniel. Daniel in this narrative points us to Jesus. Daniel's submission to God's will and his faithfulness to continue to worship God no matter the circumstances, knowing what his sentence would be, allows us to be able to first emulate Daniel, but then second, it points us to Jesus. As Daniel's faithfulness to the Father ultimately led to his deliverance from this situation, as his faithfulness led to a good thing for him, Christ's complete faithfulness to God and his submission completely to his will resulted in God's wrath for all of eternity being poured out on him. God's purpose was to deliver Daniel for his glory, and God's purpose was also in the same way to pour out his wrath and to crush Christ for him to receive glory. And because God did not spare his own son today, brothers and sisters, we are able to rejoice. We are able to glorify him. That's what brings us together. That's why we yearn to be with one another while we're apart and while, we're while we aren't able to gather together. Because we can rejoice corporately in the hope that we have that God is working all things out for His glory and for our good. We can rejoice in that today. When we see the glory of the Lord in light of our circumstances, we can, we can submit to Him. We can, we can see Him as much bigger than our circumstances. And we can see our circumstances as smaller compared to the glory that comes with knowing Him. And this doesn't mean that our circumstances just go away. Like we can see many who submit to God's will for their life and who wind up martyred for their faith. But that's okay because we trust in Him and we know that He is good. We know that He is out for our good and we know that He will receive the most glory throughout our lives if we follow His word. But what we can take from Daniel is that knowing God, and I mean knowing Him by communicating with Him constantly in prayer and throughout and through studying His Word and living out God's commands, no matter if that, if that path leads us to prosperity or to death, 
is, is better than anything else that we could ever do in our lives. It's better than anything else we could possibly spend our lives doing. And so church, this was, this was pretty convicting to me this week. Uh, I want to ask the question, can we honestly say that, that even when it becomes increasingly difficult to follow the Lord, like even when we sometimes have to be completely countercultural in the way that we raise our children, in the way that we do things on a daily basis, in the way that we interact with other people, um, even if we have to be completely countercultural, do we still faithfully press on and do what we know is right, do what we know is in God's law, or do we fold under pressure? Something I struggle with and have struggled with for my entire life is being liked and appreciated and esteemed by all people. And what, and what comes with this a lot of times for a good part of my life was this temptation that I constantly had to want to wanna fight to make the gospel more attractive or more approachable or, or just to, to keep my mouth shut completely when people begin talking about spiritual things, especially spiritual things that I, um, that I don't agree with. And thankfully, the Lord's working on me through that process to speak His Word and truth. But when it, in reality, the gospel is offensive to many of us. It's offensive to many who don't know Jesus, and it was offensive to us before we knew God. Sometimes it's still offensive to us when we're in disobedience to it. But God and His grace... Uh, through the favor that He has on our lives, works through this, and He transforms us through the truth of His Word. He transforms us through His truth, which should motivate us. That should motivate us to be faithful in Him, to speak truth, and to trust that He will receive the most glory from this, to trust that He will receive the most glory when we faithfully continue to do the things that we're doing because we know that it honors and glorifies Him. And this probably resonates even more with our brothers and sisters overseas who face more direct persecution, who face more uh, pain for the faith that they have in Christ. And But for those who have experienced God and His glory, I pray that we would be confident in our security in knowing that, that if we have truly believed upon Christ for salvation, that if we truly trust in Him, that we are secure with Him, for eternity, no matter what things happen on this earth, no matter what happens to us, that we are secure with Him. And I pray that when we have a choice to remain faithful or to just completely throw away everything that we have in our faith, everything that our faith is founded on, I pray that we would have the assurance that Paul does when he says in Romans chapter 8, when he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Church, I want to plead with you today. Christ is our hope, and in Him we have the power to endure. And for those of you who don't know Him, I pray that in the same way that you see Daniel's deliverance today, that you would hope in Him, hope in Christ, the one who can deliver you from a, an even worse adversary than lions, from death. I pray that you would trust in Him today and would receive eternal life through Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word this morning. Thank You for the gospel that is preached through, through each of these uh, narratives that we hear. And Father, I pray that today as Daniel, as Daniel does, that we would remain steadfast, that we would trust in you, that no matter what situation is brought before us, no matter, no matter what happens, that we would faithfully preach 
your gospel, that we would preach your word. Lord, I pray today for those who don't know Jesus, for those who have not experienced him, uh, that, Lord, that you would show them the salvation that comes from knowing Christ, that you would show them the hope that we have as believers in Christ, that in any situation, in any um, circumstance, in anything that happens, we can know that we have eternal security. And I pray that those who don't have that eternal security today would turn to the one true God, the one we see here who redeems, who saves, and who brings about things for his own namesake. Lord, in everything that we do, will we give you all of the glory. Lord, help us to persevere. Help us to go against the grain, to go against what is expected of us as humans, and to go into, to lean into your gospel and to lean into truth. Father, we thank you for your love, and we pray that you would continue to work in us, sanctify us, and grow us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.